If you have a Bible, go back to Colossians chapter 4. Hi, Mitch. Uh, we have not technically been in the book of Colossians uh, for about eight or nine weeks now. And if you were here in the spring, get a little bit of tweak on that. If you're here in the spring, uh, we spent a considerable part of the spring in the book of or of the spring in the book of Colossians, and uh, over the last eight or nine weeks, we kind of took a, a bit of a rabbit trail, and we have been developing an understanding of prayer through studying the Lord's prayer in particular. And the reason we did that was because in Colossians four, uh, chapter two, Paul directs the Colossian people. Uh, as a part of this new self, as a part of the new creations that they are in Christ, that this is something that they should do. They should devote themselves, be committed to prayer. And so we looked at the way that Jesus instructed the disciples and the Gospels to pray. So I thought we'd take a few minutes and remind ourselves just for a second here, uh, hopefully this won't take a massive chunk of time, of the context of what's going on in the Colossians, I hope this will help us kind of get the gist uh, of what we're going to talk about in Colossians 4, verses 3, give us a little bit of a framework. So here's a bit of a recap. This is what's going on in the Colossian church. First, uh, this is a letter of Paul, uh, and it was written while he was in prison, literally uh, in prison. The Colossian church was a relatively young church, uh, not young in age, but young in their faith, uh, a relatively new church full of new believers, new folks who are trusting Christ for the first time, beginning to understand what Paul kind of is uh, unraveling in the book of Colossians. Paul is writing this letter to encourage and contend for the hearts and minds of the believers in the Colossian church. He is concerned, and rightfully so, uh, for a lot of churches in that day and age, a lot of the reason even that Paul wrote a lot of his letters was that in that time, uh, a lot of these churches were under quite a bit of influence from other teachings and other belief systems, and they were therefore forming kind of hybrid belief systems. Uh, it's kind of like I compared it to um, cooking as a bachelor, when you go to the pantry and you kind of grab whatever you can find and you kind of throw it in a pot and you make something which can also have disastrous effects. Uh, when you start to mix uh, different systems of belief, different sets of belief, uh, things can go pretty sideways pretty quickly. And Paul was concerned for him. He was concerned that they were minimizing the supremacy of Christ, the centrality of who Jesus Christ was, what he had done. And they were doing that by adding some things to Christ or potentially subtracting some things from Christ. Different ideas, different religious duties. And this is still a problem today. Uh, we don't experience it quite in the same way. And hopefully I'm going to talk about how I think we experience it. Um, but we all do this. We're, we're not immune to this to kind of taking the gospel, and it's kind of the gospel plus this, or the gospel, but I don't really like these parts of <laughs> what Scripture teaches, so I'm just going to kind of subtract this stuff out and maybe add in a few things that makes me feel good about the way I'm living my life. We all do it. There's a rhythm to this letter. Paul is doing something pretty crucial here. He's reminding them of what has happened for them in Christ. He is then defending 
the validity or the essentiality of that truth. He's saying, I want you to know, do not forget, please don't forget what has happened for you. This is so valid. This is so essential. And then he's doing something. He's saying, now that you know this, I'm praying that God would explode a deeper understanding of that, that you would grasp the reality of that in your hearts and minds, that it would become massive to you. So not only know it, but I want you to continue to know it. I want you to grow in your understanding of it. And then finally, he's admonishing them. He's saying, please live in the reality of that truth. So know what's happened for you. Constantly cultivate a deeper understanding of that. And then that your lives would start to bear the marks of that, that you start to bear the fruit of that understanding that they would show the outward signs of the inward dispositional shift that's occurred for them in Christ. It can kind of be summed up in Colossians 2, 6, 7, and 8. He says, So then, just as you've received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up. So there you get your knowing and then growing in your understanding. Strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and on the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. We'll talk a little bit in a little bit about human tradition and basic principles of the world, how that's kind of playing itself out in our lives today. But hear this. This is the context. Paul is fighting and laboring for the Colossian church that they would continue to live in Christ just as they've received him. Fully understand what's happened for them, mature in that understanding that their lives would start to bear the fruit of that understanding. It would be a reflection of the significance of what's happened for them in Christ. So in chapter three, Paul begins to lay out some of the practicalities of what that life in Christ would look like. And that's what gets us up to 4.2. Stuff like putting on the new self and putting to death things that belong to your earthly nature. So go to 4, verse 2 and 3, and we'll read this, and then hopefully I will make some coherent comments <laughs> on these few verses. I told uh, the folks this morning at 12 South, this was a pretty massive preparation for me. Um, I hope this comes out as well as it's going on in my mind. Uh, but this has been very, very um, impactful on me to prepare this sermon. It's, ad, it's had me ask some very, very difficult questions in my own life, um, and I'm going to ask you to ask some of those questions with me tonight. So Colossians 4, 2, and 3. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message. Or if you have the ESV translation, it says pray that God may open a door for the word so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. So pray for us too that God may open a door for the message or for, our, for the word that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. A few things that I'd like for us to kind of dialogue about tonight. First is this, and we've been talking about it for eight or nine weeks, and that is prayer. Paul mentions it often in this letter. He starts this letter with prayer. He is now ending 
this letter with prayer. Repetition, and any time there's any form of repetition, it's something that we're encouraged to pay a lot of attention to. He sees prayer as a regular, necessary, essential part of life in Christ. It's why we took nine weeks to unpack what is prayer really about. Because Paul's saying that if you are in Christ, this is a part of who you are now, that you would be people who pray. It's something we do as Christ followers. It's Paul affirming something that's really, really important. It's something I forget all the time because I actually believe in myself so much. I have great hope in me. And Paul is affirming this, that the nature of how things actually happen in this world, how things change, how things occur, is because God moves. He does things. Paul knows that in us the Lord does the work. Unless he grants the faith, unless he gives you and I eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, the will, the courage, the confessional nature to follow, unless he does that, unless the Holy Spirit does what only the Holy Spirit can do, then the most convincing, the most persuasive arguments the best teaching in the world, the best experience we can kind of put on here at Midtown is powerless. It's lifeless. It's going through the motions. We are, the fact that Paul is bringing prayer into this so often, he is admitting something here, y'all. We are dependent on the Lord for everything. 1 Corinthians 2.1 is another place he makes this affirmation about his own teaching even. He says, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, this mystery of Christ that he's talking about here. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Is that the elevator? <laughs> I'm sorry. It's amazing I heard that. <laughs> uh, wow. Uh, Charles Spurgeon says it like this, famous uh, orator preacher, Shall I give you yet another reason why you should not pray? I have preached my heart out. I could not say any more than I have said. Will not your prayers accomplish that which my preaching fails to do? Is it not likely that the church has been putting forth its preaching hand, but not its praying hand? Let's get together and talk and tell each other about the truth, but how much time do I spend actually praying for you? Seeking God on your behalf, asking him to do what my words could never do in your life. Oh, dear friends, let us agonize in prayer. Martin Luther was famed for saying, I have so much to do today that I shall never get through it with less than three hours of prayer. It's most of us, right? Roll out of bed. Huge day today. 
Better spend till 10 in prayer. Yeah. Going to get through it with three hours of prayer. Sadly, um, that's not my life. So prayer. Paul is saying this is essential to our life in Christ. Nothing happens without it. And this struck me kind of odd. Uh, Maybe it won't strike you as odd, but I'm inviting you into my mind as I've prepared this. Um, or as the Lord's prepared it in my mind. He says, pray for us too. Paul is asking for prayer. The Apostle Paul (laughs) is asking for prayer. He's asking for prayer from a young church, people who are new in their faith. This is the Apostle Paul. And why is he doing this? And I would suggest he's doing it because he understands something. He's been telling them for a while now, this is what I'm praying for you. All these different things that God would deepen your wisdom and your understanding that you'd have full knowledge and full revelation of the wisdom of what's happened for you in Christ. And now he's saying, and pray for me. Pray for me too. And here, and we'll get to what he asked for, but I just, I don't want you to miss the fact that he's asking these people for prayer. It's beautiful. It's a staggering act of Christ-like humility and equality that Paul is asking this young bunch of believers to pray for him. He's saying by his action of asking that I need God's grace. I need his movement in my life. I need his power, just like you do. Literally, the God-given desire of Paul's life, the thing that he was set apart to do, to preach Christ, that desire being fulfilled, he understands it is entirely under the control, the direction, and the empowerment of the Lord and his will. So most of the people I studied, the commentaries that I looked at, they suggested that his request for prayer for an open door is more than likely twofold. It's one that literally the Lord would continue to provide Paul with opportunities for him to speak and declare the mystery of Christ. And the second thing, and this is kind of the larger thing, I think this is what the ESV is getting at when it says an open door for the word. Literally, would you open people's hearts, the door of their hearts to receive and embrace what I'm saying? He's asking that the Lord would grant the receivers of what he's saying the faith to grasp it to grab a hold of that for which Christ grabbed a hold of us. So in light of this, let's look at some of the specifics of what Paul asks. And honestly, this is where it gets a little crazy for me personally. Because he's in prison, right? And this guy is a preacher. This guy is a guy who was, had a significant experience on the road Uh, to Damascus where God literally stopped him, blinded him, and said, I've got a purpose for you that you do not understand. Uh, And I won't even go into the details of the story. Go read in Acts uh, if you want to know that. But significant conversion experience. This guy was set apart to teach, to go do what we would understand now today is plant churches, start things. This was the desire of his life. And it would seem that, and I would think we could we could draw this conclusion that being imprisoned, literally physically chained to someone and chained in somewhere would actually be kind of thwarting that call, right? 
It would be holding him back from doing what God wanted him to do. Certainly, he's going to ask them for what? Pray that I would get out of jail. Pray that God would somehow do something miraculous and get me out of this predicament because this is not his will for my life. He's he's made me Paul the Apostle. I'm supposed to be out on the road making things happen, playing churches, leading people. And here I am. I'm chained to a Praetorian guard. I'm locked in a cell. What... (laughs) This can't be God's will for my life. So this is what I want you to do. Pray that, you know, somehow I guess Rome or, you know, they must have overcome God's will. And so God's got to, you know, really ask him to fight harder to get this jail door open, right? You would think that that would be what he would be asking for. Why doesn't Paul ask them to pray for his circumstances to change? It's the only, his first and only prayer request in the letter. Make it count, right? Don't miss this. Two things. Paul asked for open doors to proclaim the mystery of Christ only because he had embraced, he had embraced the mystery of life in Christ himself. He wanted to talk about that. He wanted to proclaim that because he had embraced it. He would go so far to say he has died to that. And this has become life to him now, this mystery. He had given up on the execution of his plan, of his way, of how he thought it should go, of even the idea that his life was in fact his life. And he had fallen headlong into the fundamental trust in the, will, in, in the will of God for his life. Kind of what Joel preached on not too long ago when he said, thy will be done. It's why he can write something like he wrote in Romans 8.28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. This is not something you write on a little like card that you give people when they're having a sick day. This was not whimsical language for Paul. This was the bedrock of his existence, how he understood life. God is working this out for my good, and I am willing to embrace the mystery that I have no clue how that's happening. In fact, I may... I may even despise my current circumstances, but I know this is true. I'm going to embrace the mystery of this. How do you do with mystery? How do you do with it? I can honestly say it's, it's quite hard for me. It can create great anxiety and discomfort in my life because... I am committed to controlling my existence. And in fact, we live in a culture, in a Western culture in particular, that actually encourages you that that's really possible, isn't it? You can control everything in your life. Life is a self-actualizing possibility. Just work hard enough, make the right decisions, eliminate failures, manage failures and and move through life the way that you have set your mind to do. Just do it, right, Nike? 
I, um, when I was 24, I lost a job. And it was a job that I had no idea how much it meant to me until I lost it. And I had no idea how much of my identity and my sense of self was in this job until it was gone. And um, it was a job where my life was. (laughs) It was my life. That's about the best way to say it. And the Lord moved me uh, from that job to a hog farm in Indiana. Some of you have been around here long enough have heard some of my hog farm stories. Uh, This will not end in some kind of graphic manure story, so don't worry. Uh, Although some of you probably really would want that. Um, (laughs) Thank you, Billy. Uh, It was a time of great mystery for me um, because God was doing something. He was actually opening a door so that he was about to declare the mystery of Christ in my, in my life. He was about to explode and reveal understanding of him, of my value as his son, of the security of that, of the insignificance of what I do in life and how that doesn't affect that in a way that I had no idea was possible. It was an incredibly painful time. In fact, I despised that time for quite some time. It took a while because I was so unwilling to not be in control of my life. I was so afraid. I was terrified because it seemed on the surface so uncertain. There was too much mystery. I can't do this. I can't trust you. But after a while, I wouldn't say that the mystery gave way to understanding as much as I would say that the mystery gave way to willingness to live in the mystery. Is mystery something to be embraced? Or is it something to be solved, conquered, dominated, moved on from? Most of the time when suffering or difficulty enters our lives, we expect that God will reveal his purpose in this, don't we? In fact, we don't even talk about it with each other until we know why God did it, which is such a hilarious thing. It's been really hard, but don't worry, it's good. God's been working in it, let me tell you how. I mean, isn't it hilarious that we feel the need to just, we gotta wrap it up in a couple of days because I gotta be able to explain to you what God's up to because if I can't tell you what this is really about, ah, then what? No room for mystery. No room for God to be God and me to be a human being. I have to understand what he's doing, which really means I have to be able to control. I have to actually not need him. And what happens when he doesn't do this? What happens when he keeps us in the mystery too long? Well, oftentimes what people do and what I've done is I have to change my theology concerning his nature and character. I actually have to start believing things differently about who he is. You're not good. You're a mean kid with a uh, magnifying glass, and I'm an ant on a sunny day. You don't love me. You don't care about me. You're not sovereign over my existence. You've somehow lost control over this little quadrant of Nashville. 
Isaiah 55, 8, long before Paul wrote these words, says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord, as the heavens are higher than the earth. So are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Paul wanted to declare the mystery of Christ because he had embraced the mystery of Christ. The limits of his ability to see and understand what God was up to in his life. He goes so far, guys, in this, to in the book of Philippians, with a little bit of hindsight, this is much different than what I described uh, a second ago in the one-day turnaround that I expect to know exactly what God's doing in my life with under a day. In Philippians 1.12, he says, I want, to, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, and he's speaking of his imprisonment, has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace garden to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, because of my imprisonment, because of this massive inconvenience in my life, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. This is the jiu-jitsu that Randy talks about all the time, where God takes things that seemingly seem completely outside of what God would want for us, and he turns out and he uses them for good. Paul goes on to talk about this in People Preaching Christ. He says, some preach out of envy and rivalry, others out of goodwill, some preach for the right reasons, some preach for the wrong, selfish ambition, all this stuff. <laughs> this is such a great sentence. He says, but what does it matter? What does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motive or true, Christ is preached. The why, what does it matter? The why that you and I are looking for all the time is not as important as we think it is. Because if you and I are honest, our motives are never all good at any given moment in anything we ever do. <laughs> and Paul's saying it doesn't matter. What matters is, is the supremacy of Christ, that Christ is preached. He even goes on to say that what has happened to me, this inconvenience, this massive deviation from his plan for his life, will turn out for my deliverance. The term, the mystery of Christ, I'll explain just in a second, uh, or just in a sentence, but it can be kind of summed up in this, and this is a vast oversimplification um, because we could talk 100 Sundays on this. But the fact that God redeemed his people through the person of Christ the mystery of why he decided to do it that way and how he did it. This was not how people, and in particular, the Jewish people, thought that God was going to accomplish redemption through humility, through self-sacrifice, through servanthood, through death on a cross. Paul had this mystery revealed to him, and he had embraced it. He had done what he said in Colossians 3, 2. He had set his mind on this. 
It was the thing that he gave himself over to. And what happened, and what happens when that happens, is it becomes life to him. It becomes life. Paul had embraced the mystery of Christ and therefore was willing to embrace the mystery of Christ in him, like he talked about in Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. He had embraced the mystery of Christ so I can embrace the mystery of Christ in me. How is Christ desiring to live his life through me? I don't know. I'll go on the walk of that mystery. I will follow Jesus, and I won't expect to understand every jot and tittle of that experience, because how could I? So I ask you this question. Will you, will I, embrace mystery, or do you have to control everything? In a better way, I'm going to use some categories from a book that I've been reading that's been helpful to me, is this. Are you willing or are you willful in your life? Are you willing or are you willful? Um, This book is called Will and Spirit by Gerald May. Um, He gives some some differentiations between being willing and being willful. And I'm going to draw some lines between that of saying, willing people are people who are open to the mystery of life. Willful people are people who aren't. We'll see how this goes. Willingness and willfulness cannot be explained in a few words, even though I'm about to try, (laughs) and so does he. So I'm not in bad company. For they are very subtle qualities, often overlapping and very easily confused with each other. But we can begin by saying that willingness implies a surrendering of one's self-separateness. So I've surrendered to the idea that life, what we're doing here tonight, isn't just about you, isn't just about me. What I do out there isn't just about me. I'm not separate. I'm not an individual. Which, come on, can you think of anything that strikes harder at Western thought than that? It's all about me, baby, right? Your life is about you, right? It's a surrendering. Willingness is a surrendering of that. And an entering into an immersion in the deepest processes of life itself. It's a realization that one is already a part of some ultimate cosmic process. And it is a commitment to the participation in that process. That's what we gather here to talk about every single week. That ultimate cosmic process. The story of redemption. The fact that the story is about Christ and the story is about God's movement from creation into eternity and that our stories are in a larger story. And he's saying that willingness is commitment to that process, that our lives are a part of that story. They're not these little sub-stories. In contrast, willfulness, which is where I spend a lot of time, is the setting, a self, or setting of oneself apart from the fundamental essence of life in an attempt to master, direct, control, or otherwise manipulate existence. More simply, willingness is saying yes, willingness is saying yes to the mystery of being alive in each moment. 
Willfulness is saying no. Or perhaps more commonly, yes, but. Willingness is saying yes to the mystery of being alive in each moment. Paul had embraced the mystery. When you and I embrace the mystery, we become willing. What it does, and we'll talk about this in a second, is it changes what an open door is. I am willing to see the Lord work in my life however he sees fit. Lord, do you want to bring pain into my life? Okay, I'll receive that as from you. Reveal yourself to me. Lead me to yourself. Teach me about you. Teach me about the world that I'm in. Willfulness, which is where I think I spend enormous amounts of time, and I think most people do, is saying, I want to see God work in my life. And here's the line, and here's the line, and here's the area that I'm willing to see him work in my life. I am willful to see him work here. If he comes and starts working over here, no thanks. I wouldn't even have eyes to see that because I have set my mind on the fact that this is the only only way I want to see him work in my life is between these two posts. Paul's saying, embrace the mystery. Drop the posts. He wants to reveal himself all the time. He wants to use you in ways that you have no idea. But if you are a willful person, he cannot do so because you're only seeing what you want to see. You only see open doors that you want to see because you've made up your mind, this is the way I want to see God work in my life. I am not willing. I am willful. Depending on your willingness to embrace the mystery of Christ and consequently the mystery of your life, of my life, (laughs) this will determine what you understand to be an open door. Paul understood that being in jail was now an open door. It wasn't a closed door. Look what was happening. Guards were becoming to know the Lord. Other people were being encouraged to preach Christ. Things were happening as a result of his imprisonment. His imprisonment wasn't a closed door. It was an open door. If you see mystery as something to be eliminated, then you will only have the ability to see God work in you and use you in the areas that you will for your life. Secondly, Paul had embraced something, and this is going to sound so simple, but most of the profound things and beautiful things in life really aren't that complicated. So I pray that we can all hear this with fresh ears. Paul had embraced something other than the mystery. He had embraced that he already had In Christ, the deepest desire of his heart fulfilled. I'm going to say that again. In Christ, he already had the deepest desire of his heart fulfilled. That all of his longing, everything he wanted in life, all the things, the trappings, the things that we run after, he saw those things as being fulfilled in the person and the work of Christ. This is why he challenges them to set their minds on things above and not on earthly things. He goes on in Philippians to say, for me to live is to Christ and to die is gain. Colossians 3, 4, he says this in a sentence form, when Christ, who is your life, 
appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. He had come to embrace that this was life to him. Christ and knowing Christ was life. Life was not out there to be had. Life was something, the most defining thing in his life had already occurred. And the rest of his life would be understanding and the outworking of that. And I think this is why he asks for them to pray for this. Because you only ask for prayer for that which you value most. You don't bring up small inconsequential things when you're in a room full of people and say, what can we pray for? Usually, if there's any sort of intimacy with those people, you bring the things that you value most to the table. And the truth is, is you actually only speak about the things that are most important to you. Which we could spend some time doing that right now, and we're not going to, but I'd, I'd love to just ask you to think about this this week. What do you talk about all the time? What is on your lips constantly? I would challenge you to think that whatever it is, that is probably where you are finding most of your life. Not like what you're doing with your life, but literally your sense of life. And if it were to be taken away from you, or if it were to be threatened, you may actually consider not wanting to go on. Because it's life. If you've ever been around somebody who is falling in love with somebody else, you ever been, some of you are older, some of you are very young, and this is happening all the time, like you, someone's in love with somebody, right? You know, Jimmy is, you know, and we go on a beach trip together and he doesn't go, right? And so every time we're at a restaurant, it's like, oh, I know what Jimmy would get, or oh, wouldn't this, like, it would be amazing if Jimmy saw this. This is exactly what he would say if he saw this. And you're, you carry a bag to vomit in with you because they, they're just constantly talking about this person. And don't, you know, we all chuckle, but you've all been there uh, because you're in love. And I'm not bashing this, so don't run away with that and be like, what, is that not, you're not allowed to do that? You're going to do it. What I'm saying is, is that when you're finding life in something, you talk about it. You speak about it. You're compelled to do so. It's like knee-jerk reaction. I'm going to talk about this because I love it. It's important to me. It's what I value. It's where I find life. It's where I find my deepest sense of joy and meaning. Paul is asking them to pray for open doors for this word that he would be able to declare the mystery of Christ, guys, because it was life to him. It was everything to him. His temporal situation and circumstance had ceased to be the focal point of his existence. That is the focal point of our existences, if we're honest. What's going on for me right now? That's all that matters. He had embraced the mystery. He knew that he couldn't even foresee the good that the Lord was up to in any given situation. But he had faith that whatever was happening, God was in it. Using it to push the gospel further and further into him and the others he came in contact with. And something happens when we do this, y'all. When we embrace Christ as our life, when we embrace the mystery of the gospel, what happens is we suffer for things. 
you and I will suffer for the things that we find life in. You only suffer for what's most important to you. You will only be in chains outwardly for what you are already in chains for inwardly. Paul had become a slave to the gospel. And so being imprisoned literally was something he could embrace as God's will for his life because his life wasn't his own anymore. You see, opportunities begin to get redefined. Open doors start looking differently when we stop living willful lives because anything could be an open door. A fight with my spouse could become an open door for the gospel. A conflict with a friend, a deviation from any plan that I have for my life. All right, Lord, what are you doing? Last thing I'll say, or maybe last couple things. And this is kind of speaking back to this um, religious syncretism that was going on in Paul's day where they were mixing these different ideas, the gospel plus this and that. Um, I think that, and he kind of warned them about this hollow and deceptive philosophy that they could kind of get and taken captive by. And this is the one, and I think this plays into what I'm talking about tonight, is uh, what I would consider kind of our religious syncretism, the thing that we meld into the gospel. Yeah, I, oh yeah, I get what you're saying today, Dave. It's good, it's good, it's good. But here it is, and this is our modern fixation. Blessing. Happiness. Comfortable. Fun. That's what my life is about. That's where I'm willful. That's where I'll find life. If it's comfortable, if it's fun, if it's happy, if it's good. If this is the only way, then only in those ways, only in blessing, only in goodness, only in happiness will we see an open door. Everything else will look like a closed door to you. <laughs> this limits our ability to receive and follow Christ. Do I want to see God work in my life however he sees fit? Or do I want to see the Lord work in my life just the way that I see fit? That's a hard, hard question, y'all. It's a question I can be brought to my knees to often in asking. Because often I am willful. Lord, I am not willing to see you work in my life in these ways. I just want to see you work in my life in these ways. Pain and suffering, some of that I alluded to on the farm, has often been the most used and profound way that Christ has drawn me to him, has opened a door for the mystery of the gospel to be pressed into my life, for me to be brought back into a living reality of my frailty and of my complete dependence on him. Hosea 2 if you want to go read or study an Old Testament passage, I would go read this. He says, the prophet says this on behalf of the Lord, therefore I am going to allure her. He's talking about Israel. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. 
So I'm going to lead her into a hard place so I can speak tenderly. There I will give her back her vineyards, and I will make the valley of Angkor, which is translated the valley of trouble, the valley of difficulty, a door of hope. I will make the valley of trouble the doorway to hope. For us to be willing to suffer in proclaiming the gospel, which is a call on our lives, y'all, we must be willing to suffer to have the gospel formed in us first. It must be proclaimed in us before it can become proclaimed through us. Christ must take supremacy. Christ must become life to me. If he does, then I will be compelled to speak about him. I will suffer to do so. I will embrace the mystery and the sovereignty of God's will for my life. So let's do this together. Let's embrace the mystery of Christ. This is what we gather to do, to to stir one another. Embrace this. Set your mind on that mystery and what's happened for you in Christ. Ask him to make you a will, willing being and not a willful being. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we just are, we are so dependent on you, even to receive what you just had for us. It's a hard truth, Lord, because my life so oftentimes uh, Oftentimes through the doors that you open and the pain and the suffering that you allow to occur in my life uh, expose the fact that my life is somewhere else. It's not in you. So Lord, I just ask that you would give us the grace um, to see and understand uh, and deepen our understanding of what you've done for us, Father, and that you would give us the grace the courage and the strength um, to walk through some of these open doors that you're creating for us, Lord, Uh, that you would move in our hearts in ways that we have no power to do, um, Lord, and that we just ask boldly, Lord, that we would become people who talk about you um, because you've become our life. Lord, uh, we need your help in all of that. Uh, We're dependent on you for all of that. We ask this in your name, amen.